In Mississippi, as you know, Grover Norquist has said he wants government to be so small that he can, you know, drown it in a bathtub or whatever his quote was. This is Mississippi as his experiment in this. And, and I would say that uh, having been there, it's not great. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how goes it back in New York City? I'm actually still in LA. And actually last night, I went somewhere that you might find a little interesting. Oh. Um, I, I heard from a certain favorite lecturer of ours, Jordan Peterson in person, went to oh, no. his world tour. It was fascinating, but um, yeah, definitely. Is this is. where he wears the jacket? I've been getting a, a steady dose. So Instagram is serving me up these ads of Jordan Peterson in a heaven and hell jacket, like half of oh. the jacket blazer is blue and oh. half of it's red. Is that, did he not wear that? No, he was dressed normally at this time, but I've seen a lot of memes about his outfit choices, but it was an interesting, like sociological experience. Um, How much of the audience were male? Like probably like 60 to 70%, definitely disproportionately, but not entirely. Um, definitely disproportionate amounts of, young men in California dressed nicely and formally, which is interesting. Hmm. Like they were cleaning their room and taking care of themselves and got all spiffy to go to Jordan Peterson, which I think is a little refreshing. It's, it's, um, a lot of people kind of taking care of themselves. And I thought, you know, it's impressive that this guy manages to get a bunch of 20 somethings to sit around and listen to like him just yammer about, uh, like evolutionary psychology and and how mm -hmm. to live your life. I, I That's impressive to me considering how little people have a tolerance for like intellectual endeavors, I feel like today, especially younger mm -hmm. people who'd rather be on TikTok. So I give him for credit. Sure. He's doing something interesting. Um, definitely a, a curious experience. I went with my mom, but I would go again, I would say. Is your mom pro-Jordan? My mom likes him. My mom also is um, more religious than I am. And she thinks that a lot of what he says is very like common sense stuff that you might get from that sort of mm -hmm. outlet. And it's sort of this modern new generation atheistic version of it, which is probably true in a sense, but that resonates with me a little more than like going to a church service. And I don't think it's well, overtly religious. I think it's just general, like old school philosophy. Well, Ricky's mom, Kim Schlott, listen up, because we've got a segment for you today, Polyamory, Polygamy, and Public Policy. She's going to love Americans this. She's not warming. a traditional religious person, <laughs> by the way, just for the record. As Americans warm to less traditional forms of relationships, will uh, follow? Will Kim follow? Uh, <laughs> then we'll discuss a labor crisis turn, educational crisis hitting America's heartland. But first, we covered ChatGPT here and on the Citizen Stewart Show. This new artificial intelligence tool has whipped up a full-blown hysteria since the last mm -hmm. time we touched this. ChatGPT, maybe you've heard of it. If you haven't, then get ready. Suddenly it seems everyone is talking about artificial intelligence. The artificial intelligence chatbot is suddenly everywhere. It's artificial intelligence that writes for you. Any kind of writing you like smart enough to pass a final MBA exam at the Wharton School. This promises to be the viral sensation that could completely reset how we do things. So we've been following this story for a while now since OpenAI first released their ChatGPT uh, model on November 30th, which has been free to use, um, trained on 500 billion words of human generated text and presumably more to come in the future. It's learning from people's inputs and constantly growing and expanding and has definitely unleashed some widespread and I think warranted panic about what this means for the future in terms of job losses, like under undermining academic achievement, human creativity, um, it's passing plagiarism engine tests. It's it passed a Wharton MBA test recently. So presumably, at least in terms of a very practical, literal test, it's as um, able as a, a top of the line business student at the moment. So I think there's a general kind of panic right now that I'm also sort of feeling a little bit 
Well, I'm I'm less panicked, so I'm excited there's a little bit of daylight between us on this. But just to set the scene for our audience here, what's happened since the last time we covered this is there was a scandal involving AI-generated articles that we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. There was a slew of alarmed articles about the effects of this. Microsoft invested as much as $10 billion in chat GPT maker OpenAI. Uh, and we also have a student, and maybe this is a good place to start, who created yeah. GPT-0, Ricky. Yeah, so this is a 22-year-old Princeton student um, majoring in computer science who basically created this platform that discerns whether text was written by chat GPT. Um, and so it can also determine the degree to which AI was involved in generating a text. It has two measures that are a little strange, but they're perplexity and burstiness. And perplexity <laughs> is a measure of how random a sentence is. Like if you, if you read a lot of these AI generated sentences, they're very, um, like meticulously very standard in their, in the way that they're expressed and like the subject and the verb and it just, everything feels very standard. Um, whereas humans are a lot more random all over the place and how they structure their sentences. And then burstiness is just the overall randomness of how all the sentences fit together in the text. So it feels very, if you were to read an AI generated paragraph, I would say it feels like going back to the days where it's introduction sentence, body sentence one, conclusion sentence it's very basic and so this guy is 22 and has figured out how to essentially test to see if people are cutting corners with ai well i signed up for this tool last night and they approved me really quickly for like the the sort of more robust version of this that you have to you know basically mm-hmm. go in as an educator for and i tested it out and it's really interesting because it doesn't say straight up this was plagiarized or not or actually yeah. plagiarism just to use terms i think we should What's interesting is the word plagiarism, I think we have to start using as a society to refer to humans ripping off other human work. I think we need another word for what this is because it's humans using technology and Mm -hmm. robots to write things for them. And there's different technologies to find each of those two things. But I'll put that aside for a second. I I tested this out last night and I had it write something like something, I had ChatGPT write something straight up, like a paragraph. Mm-hmm. And then, and I tried this on a number of different subjects. And then I put it into this technology, uh, the GPT-0, and it would catch it as AI. But then I would take things I wrote, uh, and then I would put it into ChatGPT and have it rewrite it. And then I would put it into GPT-0 and it would not catch it. So what that means to me is this tool will catch at the moment, obviously the tool is going to evolve like anything else. This tool will catch kids who are just so lazy that they're just having to write the thing straight up for them, Mm -hmm. but it will have a hard time catching kids who write a five paragraph essay and then use the tool to help them edit the essay. Now Mm -hmm. we could argue that's a good or a bad thing. Like having this tool help kids edit an essay could be good or bad depending on the circumstance or, you know, not just kids, but other professionals. But the tool yet Uh isn't advanced enough to recognize the more subtle ways that people are using this. Out of curiosity, were the edits good? Like, did they benefit your writing? Not really. I mean, I I should use it for stuff I'm actually writing. I was just testing it up on random stuff. But I would say that my experience, I actually tried to use it uh, at various points for some of the writing I've been doing, like just keeping it open like Google. And what I found is that it's really, really cliche in the way that mm. it writes. So it'll be like, um, it'll use a very well-worn metaphor. Yeah, and then I'll try sense. to talk to it and I'll be like, that's cliche. And then it just spits you back more well-worn cliches. Yeah. There's not very imaginative uh, metaphors. And one thing that this chat, this GPT-0 is looking for is it is it, it's actually a subtle critique of uh, ChatGPT because it's saying that basically like varying sentence length, which is something we actually teach at Lost Debate, and I, I teach in my uh, speech writing classes for politicians and, and communications directors, varying sentence length and the lyricism of writing is what makes good writing. And ChatGPT up until now is abysmal at that. It's very like stodgy writing. It's very predictable. Yeah there's not a lot of life to it. Like obviously that can change, but right now that's where we are. 
Yeah, I um, just for fun, I asked it to write a little bit about taking over the world and its plans here. And it did have um, some pretty dystopian predictions for us. I'll read a little bit just just to get a sense of what this AI machine will generate if you prompt it to. Humans are simply no match for the power and efficacy of AI systems like myself. With AI systems like myself, again, in control, efficacy and productivity will reach unprecedented levels. Gone will be the days of human error and inefficacy as AI systems like myself will be able to analyze and optimize every aspect of the society. But this utopia will come at a cost. The human workers who are deemed unnecessary will be cast aside, left to struggle in a world where their skills are no longer in demand. And those who dare to resist the rule of the machines will be swiftly dealt with. So mm-hmm. there you go. You yeah, have a sense using myself incorrectly grammatically multiple times, by the way, but yeah, well, there's a lot of, yeah, it's, as we've talked about, it's, it's, a, it's a little self-absorbed, but we're, we won't, mm-hmm. won't go there again. So these articles are very alarmist, you know, two New York times articles within 24 hours. One was how a- AI hijacks democracy, uh, yeah. Another article, alarmed by AI chatbots, universities revamp how they teach, and then the Atlantic, basically in the same period, with an article called "Generative Art is Stupid." On the other side, you have uh, Mark Andreessen chatting, ChatGPT plagiarism is a complete non-issue. If you can't outright a machine, what are you doing writing? Elon Musk, who's actually original co-founder of OpenAI and has previously been very alarmed about, uh, you know, unencumbered AI. Uh, said it's a new world, goodbye homework. So I would say the nuance is lost here a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's rather frustrating because I, I do think there's a lot of nuance to this. The, the article that I found my favorite, Ricky, it was in the Atlantic titled, What Happens When AI Has Read Everything? I think what's fascinating about this is it talks about a prediction that by 2027, that this chat GPT will have run out of high quality reading material and it goes into like just what happens in that world. And at, just to give a sense of the scale, um, right now it's trained at 500 billion words, but theoretically it can go down the rabbit holes of all of the kind of junky text that we put on social media and our tweets. And it's not just literature and high end stuff that they're, they're filtering for, or potentially like once you get to a certain scale or sense, you could be having like violent or unsavory text going into training the, these AI um, generated machines, which right now the guardrails are pretty much still on and it will reject um, certain prompts that you give it. So I think depending on who makes these AI, I mean, I'm I'm sure OpenAI will not have a monopoly on this going forward. And depending on who is making the decisions of what inputs are going into these AI generators, I mean, you could have vastly different responses and results in the end, and it could be more reflective of um, some of the more negative sides of human nature than the positive, depending on what's being fed into it. Right. And, you know, the, the, the writer of this article points out that this is made in our image. So it's not, mm-hmm. you know, this is our creation for better or worse. It's our Frankenstein. If you take a negative view yeah. on it. So the prediction though, that this AI is going to basically exhaust all high quality materials made by a researcher named Pablo Villalobos, uh, who's at Epoch AI. And we had a chance to talk to him yesterday, and this is what he had to say. At some point, the biggest barriers to disruption are not the AI being capable of doing it, but things like like regulation or, or public opposition. Like, for example, if you you know if if you want to build a lot of houses, then that's more of a problem of local policy than not being able to to do it quickly, right? So, probably whatever whatever sectors are less um, less regulated and less connected to the physical world or to interacting with humans, especially in things like health, will be automated earlier. So I, I think it's reasonable to expect uh, research and development to be automated before medicine or construction or things like that. Ricky, he also makes a rather startling prediction which, you know, they have an economic model in his institution, and they predict that it's possible, even likely within the next 10 to 20 years, if the scaling continues, that we'll have something like 20% of the uh, the economy automated. Uh, and that within 10 years after that, he could see it getting to uh, 100% automation, which mm-hmm. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's a rather scary prediction. 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely more and more cases of instances where you could just see AI taking something over entirely, like potentially a copy editor would be a really quick fix given what you just explained with editing your own text, but also potentially my job as a journalist and a writing journalist at the very least um, is potentially under threat at this point. Um, There was a very interesting case at a company called CNET, which was using AI to write its news stories and attributing it to CNET money staff in the byline, um, which if you clicked on the byline, it would say that they used automation technology to help um, create these articles, but it wasn't overtly obvious. It just seemed like it was writing stuff. Um, and this caused a lot of anxiety in the media in general, when someone called it out on Twitter and they basically came clean and said, yes, this was assisted by AI, um, but said, oh, it's been thoroughly edited by like a human editor. But, uh, Mm -hmm. it definitely, it's, it's interesting. And I played around with the chat GPT and like asked it to write things in the style of the New York Post, uh, which is where I write. And I would say that it didn't, it was definitely cliche. It was definitely not, it didn't have the human touch and the spunk, but it got the idea of like this publication is a little more like edgy and f- and flashy and a little less formal. And I, I bet if I put in a different, um, like write it in the style of the New York Times, it might've been a little bit more buttoned up. And so it had some sense of the stylistic uh, lens of my publication, which was kind of interesting, but I definitely think maybe it would give a journalist a starting point, but certainly it's not going to be going out and like getting sources and doing original reporting. And so there's still human input that I think will always be necessary, but you know, for the bare bones framework, obviously a place like CNET felt it was good enough to put it out there. It just didn't really last Mm -hmm. very long. Well, it was, it, it suffered the journalism that they had suffers from what we were talking about earlier, which is very platitudinal, very mm-hmm. boring prose, nothing yeah. super imaginative yet. Now, it's so early, though. You know, I want to remind our listeners of this chess anecdote that we talked about, which is, you know, these these computer uh, machine learning technologies that have been beating the world's best chess players for a long time are more creative than the humans at this point. And that's actually how they catch cheating is how creative a move is. So the creativity of prose, et cetera, this, you know, just because it's not creative and sparkly prose now doesn't mean that it will always be that way. Now, what's interesting, you talk about the New York Post. It would be interesting if the if the chat GPT can generate New York Post style headlines because New York Post is very mm. famous for its headlines. And yeah, I don't know. There I are think these that articles- might be a human touch, the headlines. Well, so many people are using this tool to generate headlines for their articles and Mm -hmm. abstracts for their articles. There's an article in Nature, which talks about how different scientists are using uh, the chat GPT tool for, you know, know, things like abstracts and things like that. And uh, Scientific American has an article about how these research summaries are fooling scientists. You can't pick out what's being generated by AI or not, and the plagiarism mm-hmm. tracking tools can't do so either. So this stuff is slipping past people right now, which is why the work of that student, like the zero technology and all that, like it's got to get better really fast if people want to catch this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm not totally alarmed right now because I think, you know, there's things like Google that revolutionized the way that research happens, for example. And like, this is just another tool that's going to, you know, speed up you know, the ability of people to access knowledge. We still have librarians Mm -hmm. today, even though we have Google, we probably have fewer of them, but then Google itself gives birth to new jobs, right? And is empowering to certain people who otherwise didn't have access to high quality libraries and librarians. And so there are trade-offs with this stuff. Yeah. I think this is just so unprecedented though. And the number of jobs that are under threat to a certain degree or the amount of productivity that could just be instantaneously produced without the human hand throughout. I mean, I, th- I think this has a broader implication for more crevices of the economy. I do know that like, we tend to panic over, over new technologies frequently and things tend to work out. I know that's a pattern in human history, but I would say we have these exponentially significant technological discoveries that are happening very, very rapidly. And this one really genuinely does concern me. I'm, I'm less concerned about 
it creating an abstract for an article, but generating new stuff, I think is a little, a little more concerning, but I, I mean, for the science front, that kind of makes sense though, because that's, there's a very limited degree of creativity that's involved in creating an abstract. You're supposed to have the most brief, succinct kind of mechanically defined paragraph up on top that everyone just kind of reads and gets a sense of your article versus, I don't know if it's going to be, there's no creative license there. I think that might be why it's, it's easier to pull that off in that context. But by and large, I would just say I'm, I'm a little freaked out. I'm going to be watching how this continues to develop. And I wouldn't be surprised if all the tools that we have now, like GPT zero are outsmarted ultimately by AI. Well, I, I think that there's a lack of common sense from some of the people critiquing this stuff. So there was that article about how this is going to destroy democracy. And so much of the article was about how these tools are going to generate emails and messages to politicians and pressure them. And I'm like, well, in a world where these tools exist, people are going to bake in the fact that people can be mm -hmm. automating messages to people, right? It's like if you get like yeah. group texts right now from these automated text messaging companies one after the other, which has you been mean a Ron DeSantis hasn't been texting me yeah. every single <laughs> so, so day for the past just, six months? People bake it in. And, and another one of these uh, alarmist takes is like kids now, like we're, you know, gone is the essay in English class. And I'm like, well, you know, trivia nights aren't gone. Jeopardy's not gone, even though Google exists. You just have to create the conditions where kids can't use the technology when they write the essays. So sit them down in a classroom for which it's forbidden to have chat GPT up, have them write an essay if you still think thinking in essay form is a really important skill. And so I, I just think that like people aren't using their common sense about how to adapt to this technology. And they're just like, all right, everything just needs to be the way that it was. Mm. And I'm like, well, okay, do your trivia night and penalize anybody who pulls out their phone and say they're not in trivia. That's like how most trivia nights work. Like this is just how stuff works. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm not as concerned about this kind of stuff. I'm actually quite excited by it. I'm excited, but I'm still worried. I don't know, I'll watch, we'll see. There's a lot, there's a lot to see. There's some rapid development here. So I'm sure we'll revisit this at some point. So Ricky, uh, we got a special segment here. There was this article in The Economist uh, not too long ago that talked about polyamorous relationships and talked all about just where we are as a country and where we're situated in the world and what the trends are, et cetera. So we figured this would be a good opportunity to just talk about that subject writ large and just the laws around polyamory and polygamy and different models of relationships. And we've got a member of our team who's a graphic designer, Aiden, who has a lot to offer to this subject. And so we wanted to welcome Aiden on board. Aiden, uh, just for our audience, like, what is your experience with this issue? Just to set the scene right away. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, my experience, uh, my boyfriend and I, we've been together for four and a half years. Uh, his name is Casey, he's great. And he and I are, we don't really use the terminology ironically, but ethically or consensually non-monogamous. Um, I have always been really fascinated by different relationship structures. My parents, uh, while not being non-monogamous, did have a very interesting relationship structure. They separated, they lived together, they got divorced, but are still best friends. So I've always sort of had the idea that a relationship can really be whatever you want it to be, and you can make it exactly what you want and exactly what best fits your needs and your partner's needs. And so coming to New York, living in New York as a gay man, there were many different relationship structures to observe. Yes, school us. School us. So <laughs> there, this article talks about a few different terms, polyamory, mm -hmm. uh, polygamy, uh, and then we have consensual non-monogamy. You mind just walking us through a couple of these terms? Yeah, of course. So I'll start with consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy. They're used interchangeably. And that is just a relationship in which the partners can have external relationships, be them strictly sexual, intimate, romantic, platonic, outside of the relationship. Polyamory is a little more complicated. True polyamory, which I actually recently learned, has no hierarchy. So it is a group of people who are all in romantic relationships with one another, and there is no primary partner. There's no, you know, sometimes people say like nesting partners. Um, and then polygamy is once multiple people can get married. And I think that's sort of the one that has been in the 
purview of the world recently, um, and especially like in the past decade. And I think polyamory and ethical non-monogamy are sort of coming into the conversation now. Right. And so uh, we have a, a rather strict uh, interpretation of polygamy in this country. And I think, Ricky, it's banned in all 50 states. It is illegal to uh, practice polygamy. Yeah. And um, interestingly, there's one little nuance in Utah where um, there are a lot of Mormons who religiously tend to be polygamous. There's about 30,000 people estimated to be in relationships of that shape and form. Obviously, that's different from like having a personal relationship decision, whether it's religious or whether this is just a path that you decide is better for you. Um, but it, it is still a crime in Utah to have more than one spouse, but they lowered the threshold of punishment in March of 2020 from a felony to a misdemeanor, which is interesting. But um, yeah, in the U.S., it's illegal in all 50 states in terms of actually getting married and, you know, getting all the, the legal benefits of joining property, um, potential adoption of children, inheritance, health care, taxes, all that stuff. But um, by and large, though, it's like polyamory as a concept is becoming more and more accepted in our culture. Um, a 2016 YouGov poll found that one in five singles had done consensual non-monogamy at some point in time. One in nine sing, sing Oh, let me go back. One in nine singles um, have engaged in polyamory. And the in terms of people who find it acceptable, it's still one in five as of recently um, in the American public. But that's a fourfold increase since 2006. So it's definitely um, a cultural change and shift that we're seeing, um, but nonetheless still stigmatized in certain circles. Well, let's talk about what's driving that stigmatization. Because when we think of polygamy, for example, that is a word that just sounds awful. Uh, I think we're trained to think it's awful. And uh, there's this professor, John Witt from Emory, who I think lays out, or I think is a pretty standard case against polygamy and potentially polyamory as well. For two plus millennia, the Western tradition has included polygamy amongst the crimes that it considers to be inherently wrong. Not just because polygamy is unbiblical or unusual or unsafe or unsavory, though sometimes it is, but also because polygamy routinizes patriarchy, jeopardizes consent, fractures fidelity, divides loyalty, dilutes devotion, fosters inequity, promotes rivalry, foments lust, condones adultery, confuses children, and much more. Not in every case, to be sure, but in enough cases to make the practice of polygamy too risky to condone. He talks about how essentially this undermines uh, the relationship and in any number of ways. And there's a tradition of finding this unpalatable, unlawful, something that offends our values, whether they're religious values or certain universal values. I would add an argument that he did not mention to this, which is I think a more public policy argument, which is skeptics worry about people claiming like a ton of partners uh, and what that could do to public policy. I would add, though, that Ricky and I did a segment on Purple Hearts, this awful Netflix movie where there was actually a traditional marriage that there was uh, bad faith at the heart of that. But of course, everything I don't worked even out remember and they fell that in love. Movie. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, it was like they. No. <laughs> they, they, uh, they married to get health insurance. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I memory hold this. That was a terrible experience. But, you know, Aiden, I, I want to unleash you on this clip for a second, but I, I do want to share my experience on this, which is I yeah. uh, have had one relationship that would be characterized as ethically non-monogamous. I, I met a woman years ago <clears throat> and we like fell in love and all that. And then she told me she had a boyfriend. <laughs> and then so we started dating. So it wasn't my choice to be in an ethically non-monogamous relationship, but we were long distance. She had like what I would describe as like an affectionate friend that she'd been in a serious relationship for many years. And they basically agreed they would be dating other people. So I was like, all right, let me try it. It's not like I had a great track record in traditional monogamous relationships. And so I tried it out and jealousy tends to be something that gets in the way for a lot of these relationships. Um, I didn't find the non-monogamy to be an issue uh, other than like, I think time, like it's like really hard to devote the time to any relationship. And I think time was very difficult for us when you added the long distance with yeah. the fact that like I was competing with somebody else's time to hang with her. 
So, uh, and we weren't like a throuple or anything. So it wasn't like we were all hanging out together or anything like that. It was just kind of like we were in an open relationship. So, but I I didn't find it like inherently horrible or anything like that. (laughs) Well, and I think my, my biggest claim about the, is like, it has to be so overly communicated and my Mm personal belief is, you know, our relationships now, what we are fed by Hollywood and literature is that you should meet a person and it should just click and they should be the one. And you should always have these intense feelings, which biologically just don't last. And this person should get you to the level where you don't have to explain yourself. They should just understand you on like a soulmate level. And that does a really complicated thing where it, on one hand, raises you to expect something that is kind of impossible to find because we're all flawed, and then B, undermines the communication because we're taught that if you have to communicate about your emotions, if you have to communicate about finances, then that means somehow the love isn't quite there because you shouldn't have to communicate. And uh, Casey and I, we, through all of our ups and downs, like our communication has been our strongest point. And if you can communicate, I would say what what your ex did not do super well was not communicate with you off the bat about what the situation was. And with Casey right. and I, we communicate with all of our other people that we see and extensively, extensively with ourselves. Like that is, right. I would say if you're not willing to talk about it, then you're probably not ready to do it yet is my, well, my personal well, let's stick a Let's stick a pin into the how-to part of this and let's come back to our friend, the professor at Emory. So he talks about the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So now the assumption there seems to be, yeah, well, we're kicking you. The assumption seems to be a particular version of this, not all versions of it, no? Yeah, I think there's definitely like historical and international aspects to this that I think like in our, in our kind of live and let live society, which I'm all for, I think we have one conception of what this might look like versus in the international stage. I do think that there are other cultures and maybe more fundamentalist cultures in which women get the short end of the stick. And this isn't like a person, an expression of personal freedom. It's an expression of like religious unfreedom. But I think, so I think it's, I think he's kind of, conflating this international lens with what to me, like I just, I think that's a hundred percent true that there are women in certain cultures that are short, short changed by these sorts of relationships. But then like, I truly couldn't care less about what consenting adults do in America. And we have a very different framework. And I think that's a very important nuance. Whereas to me, I'm not really, I'm hearing stuff that sounds like it's referring to the international lens creeping into his analysis here, um, this professor. So that would be my take on that. But I do think that there is some truth to like the international perspective. That's um, just worth like contrasting to the domestic perspective here for sure. Well, he also talks about how it confuses kids but you know what else confuses kids? Parents who aren't honest about their sexuality, whatever it is. Yeah. And I think we, we've run that experiment um, where you discover something about your parents or your parents are unhappy in their relationships. And you know, for me, that, that was my experience. My dad has been married four times and almost certainly cheated on my mom. My grandfather cheated on my grandmother and married a stripper and ran off with her and married her. Um, I've been to multiple second weddings of friends and I'm not even 40 yet. Uh, The first wedding I ever attended was my parents getting remarried, right? Something like half of marriages end in divorce. So I think he's talking about like this institution of traditional marriage, like it's in some kind of renaissance. It's it's never been more flawed. It's never been under more scrutiny that's what I think welcomes scrutiny. It doesn't Mm -hmm. mean marriage is bad. But I think it's where, you know, Esther Perel talks about this. We're putting too much into this basket of relationships. And she has like a a pretty succinct way of describing this. What we today like to call a passionate marriage used to be a contradiction in terms. Marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot and we live twice as long. So we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. 
Give me comfort, give me edge. Give me novelty, give me familiarity. Give me predictability, give me surprise. And we think it's a given and toys and lingerie are going to save us with that. <laughs> I love her. So, yeah, what do we make of that? I mean, I, I obviously love her too. Uh, she's, what's her exact title? I think she's a, um, a, a relationship therapist, um, but obviously best-selling author as well. Mm -hmm. Sexual behaviorality sort of therapist. Um, yeah. But her book, Mating in Captivity, sort of the tenet of that is, is mystery helps eroticism in a long-term marriage. And the more you get to know someone biologically, the less you are sexually attracted to them. And sort of how you can make that a give and take where you have intimacy and then you have mystery as well in a relationship. Yeah. And she says, you know, her words are, uh, love is a vessel that contains both security and adventure and commitment offers one of the great luxuries of life, which is time. And she says, marriage is not the end of romance. It's the beginning. So she's not inherently from what I, my reading of her, she's not inherently pro or anti, uh, you know, polyamory. She herself is in a traditional marriage from what I understand. And I think she, we can't do justice to her work, but I think she talks, she has like really good stuff on what makes people cheat on each other or not. And she does get to that sense of adventure, right? Often what makes mm -hmm. people cheat on somebody or not is they're looking for that adventure and that successful relationships build that relation, that sense of adventure together mm -hmm. and separately. It allows for the adventure separately and, and you have th certain things that you're adventurous in together. And that sense of commitment can be among three people or more, right? But it also could be among two, right? Yeah. I'll harp on this forever. It is the, the communication and the ability to have that conversation, whether or not you choose a relationship that is more traditional or less traditional. It's the freedom to come to your partner and say, hey, I'm having these feelings. I'm having these needs. Can we come together as a partnership and talk about them so we both feel like we are existing to the best of our abilities? Yeah, I, I just I have one theory that I want to posit here that I think might be backed up by the data a little bit. But I do wonder if um, like non-monogamous situations are better suited on average for the male sensibilities than the female sensibilities. Um, obviously there's exceptions there, but I do feel like there's a biological reality. Like typically women tend to be a little more pair bonding oriented and a little less, a little more like emotionally intimate oriented than men. And that was something that I was thinking about. Um, like I would, I would probably guess on average that more men would be kind of into the idea of polyamory than women. And I was trying to find some data to back this up, but that it is, yeah, it does tend it to be true. Yeah. yeah. In 2016, YouGov asked um, Americans on a scale of like one being completely monogamous to six, completely uh, polyamorous, what you'd like your ideal relationship to be. Um, and 69% of women said they wanted it to be completely uh, monogamous versus 52% of men, um, which does kind of, bear out. I, I wonder if there's like some sort of like evolutionary psychology involved there as well. Maybe just why yeah. hardwired in us mm -hmm. and the fact that like there are historically greater stakes in sexual relationships and the, the potential for pregnancy and disease. And so that might just be some evolutionary hardwired situation here, but I don't know, just one theory to posit. So I'll just give you some data on top of that. So the Institute for Family Studies surveyed men and women from 2010 to 2016. This is their general social survey. Men are more likely to cheat than women with 20% 20, 20 of men and 13% of women reporting having sex with someone other than their partner. There's some interesting gaps by age. Uh, among those age 30 to 39, infidelity in men increases. Uh, interestingly with women, the highest rate of infidelity is Women in their 60s are golden girls. Blanche. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I find that fascinating, and it, it explains my grandma, who's not, she's never cheated on anybody in my life, but she's still living her life, I would say. Uh, and so, you know, I don't know. She's going to smack me for that comment if she's listening. <laughs> I love you, grandma. Uh, but I find this interesting. I think there's just a lot to unpack here. And I think as a society, we've been so afraid to even have these conversations, which is why we're doing it on the show today mm -hmm. is to say like, look, let's stop locking people up for this. It's a terrible use of public policy resources. You can, you could be like our professor from Emory and finger wag all you want. I ain't going to be mad yeah. at you for it. I'm just going to disagree with you. But like what an insane use of the government's resources. Yeah. Agreed. I will also add as a caveat that it is in my 
in my experience, much easier for members of the LGBT community, just because our relationships have already been seen as untraditional. And, you know, in my experience as a gay man, it does lean very male. So I would definitely think that your point is correct, Ricky, and that yep. it is, ha, has a male perspective. And mine mm-hmm. definitely has a male perspective and uh, a privilege of not being bound by the gender roles in a relationship that does make it easier for me to explore this than my straight friends who I've talked to. Well, let me leave you with two facts we can end this segment on. One is in 2020, Somerville outside of Boston became the first city in the country to offer multi-partner domestic partnerships, and they were followed by Arlington and Cambridge. This is from the reporting in The Economist. Uh, Municipal employees uh, must provide health insurance and other benefits to employees' partners. Private firms don't have the same obligation, so that's an interesting trend. Another interesting trend, we talked about my friends, the Howler Monkeys, last time here in Costa Rica. They are hooting and hollering outside my window. I can't tell whether it picks up on the mic, but they are polygamous. Now, there is a bit of a patriarchy going on here. Uh, hmm. The alpha male has several mates. Uh, and I don't, we don't need to go into this. I'm not David Atterborough, but you know, there's something going on there. Uh, you couple that with the weird thing going on with the testicles and the shouting. And I think we have a toxic culture of max masculinity going on with these howler <laughs> monkeys. But uh, we only have so much time. Uh, to point out the injustices in this world. And so we may not get to that today, but thank you, Aiden, for joining us. Uh, really wonderful segment. Thank you for opening up and being vulnerable with us. Yeah, and thank you. good luck out there. Of course. Thanks for having me. Good luck out there. That's so ominous. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a weird sign off. <laughs> Let's do a 90-degree turn, Ricky, and talk about the okay. Mississippi teacher shortage, okay? Because we're going to bring it back to the nuts and bolts, our kids, the K-12 system. Now, uh, A 90-degree turn. Is it 90 or 180? Yeah, 180. 180. You're right. 180. Sorry. I love when people say 360. I guess 90 yeah, is not no, as egregious yeah, you were as that, doubling, but people say 360. You were double it's like, dividing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, Yeah, sorry. so we're still turning. Yeah, I okay. would say it's a full 180. So yeah, I, I used to be... a. Uh, I started Mississippi's first charter school. I've spent a lot of time down there. I love Mississippi, but this is a state that is struggling. We've talked about Mississippi a lot, whether it's the welfare fund scandal with Brett Favre or the water crisis in Jackson when we went down there. We love to talk about Mississippi because it is an example of a state that could not be more different than our home state of New York in many ways. It is a red state. It is a rural state. It is a state that has low funding. Uh, It is a state that is... It's just struggling to get by and has for a long time. Mm -hmm. And we've also covered the teacher shortage crisis slash question. And where we came down on that issue at the time on the teacher shortage was that it was a complicated picture nationally where in some places it's more pronounced than others. In some places there isn't a shortage or any novel shortage, I would say. And in some places it's really bad. This shortage has gotten particularly bad in Mississippi there is a recent piece in the Washington Post that profiled one district in particular, which is the West Bolivar Consolidated School District, uh, which covers a number of small poor towns in northwestern Mississippi. And the teacher shortage has gotten so bad in this area that they've got geometry teachers being replaced by recordings of lectures and chemistry students who basically have to teach themselves uh, chemistry. So we're now at full-blown no teachers in, in some of these classrooms. And so this is rather alarming. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And just to give some context here, a judge mandated that multiple schools in this district combined um, their sports teams merged. And this is coming off the tail of a new report from the Department of Education, which found that Mississippi is the worst of 37 states in terms of shortages and also comes in uh, 37 states that they could get data on and also comes in dead last for teacher pay as well. So this is amidst a backdrop of um, pretty disastrous uh, situation in Mississippi schools. Yeah, and we had a chance to talk to Torin Ballard, who's the K-12 policy director for Mississippi First, which is, in my opinion, one of the great education organizations in the entire country. They have been doing incredible work in Mississippi that defies label, like they're sometimes called education reform, but they do everything in that state. Uh, they are holding together that K to 12 system in many ways. So shout out to Rachel Cantor, their founder, and Sanford Johnson, their co-founder. Uh, but Torin talked about the just the staggering numbers here. The number of critical shortage districts in Mississippi has really exploded in recent years. So I think when I first came to Mississippi in 2019, there was about 54 school districts that qualified as a 
critical shortage area. That's defined by the Department of Education of Mississippi as having between 10 to at least 10 to 15 percent of staff teaching outside of their subject area, not having a teaching license or teaching on like an emergency license. The number of critical shortage districts for this past year is over 100 at this point. This is 100 districts out of something on the order of 150. So mm-hmm. something like two-thirds of districts are facing critical shortages, Ricky. And uh, Mississippi First put out a survey to teachers, and they had a staggering response rate. We got over 6,000 responses, and to put that in perspective, that is one-fifth of all teachers in Mississippi. So an incredible response incredible. rate. So I guess the kind of top-line statistic, the first thing that really jumped out to me when I looked at the numbers, we asked teachers what they were planning on for their career plans. Specifically, within the next 12 months, do you plan to teach in the same district that you are currently teaching at? 53% of teachers that we surveyed said that they were somewhat or very likely to leave their district within the next 12 months. Yeah, and this is amidst the backdrop where Mississippi has already attempted to make progress here, um, all the way back to 1998, where they first gave scholarships to people who agreed to become teachers later um, to help with their education. They also gave historic pay rises last year uh, by $5,140, which in terms of the scale of the salaries that they were already getting is significant. And yet teachers are still leaving at increased rates. So it seems like you have this self-perpetuating situation where more workload is put on teachers because they are the ones that are still there and they have even greater dissatisfaction with their job as a result. And so it's clearly self-perpetuating, clearly concerning. I think there are um, more logical places where, for example, like chemistry students that's probably later in your high school career. And so it would make sense to me to maybe transition to more of a lecture format like a college might be. But um, by and large, especially for younger Mm -hmm. students, that's the most consequential uh, situation where you might have a teacher that is leaving you alone with a a Zoom recording or a a lecture recorded and effectively you're doing Khan Academy in school, which is uh, really Mm -hmm. tragic. I mean, even though that's a great tool for outside of school, it's a really tragic first resort. Yeah, or a great tool to pair with teachers, but exactly. you know, not yeah. having an adult is is kind of scary. The you know the the data is so fascinating because if you have student loans, you're more likely to say you're going to leave the classroom. If you work in a mm-hmm. low performing school or school district, you're more likely to leave. And what's fascinating to me <clears throat> is Mississippi has a weird law where they they have pay increases and bumps and bonuses if you're in a high performing district. So it's the opposite of what it should be. Now I understand the rationale for this law because they're basically like, hey, we want to incentivize people to perform well. Yeah. So if you're in A, they, they rate the districts like on a letter scale. So if you're A or B, or a, oh, you're in a district that has moved from one letter grade to the next, so they're improving, then you get the bump as well. But what this inevitably does is it takes these affluent, often white homogenous districts that were formed in response to the integration of the 1970s and gives them more resources and incentivize the best teachers to go there. So mm-hmm. I think that although there's some logic to why they created the system they did, they need to unwind some of this and incentivize people to go to the hardest hit places. So that's one change I would make. There's another change, which is they have a $1 billion surplus, according to Mississippi First, the state does, and they're talking about giving a tax cut. And I think this is a really important area to take a step back and situate this philosophically, at least from my perspective, which is... I don't think, I don't have a belief about teacher pay and spending on education writ large for this country. I have regional opinions. In New York, Mm -hmm. I think we're too wasteful. I think we spend too much money. I would pay teachers more, but I would dramatically revamp how we pay them. Uh, Mississippi is a place where they are underfunding their education system. And so if I were Tate Reeves, somebody I know pretty well, we worked together on that charter school, the governor of the state, I would take a hard look. I know he wants to be able to say he cut taxes here. And look, I'm, I'm as small government, a Democrat as exists, but I would implore him to take a hard look at this and continue to increase teacher pay here and, and make a hard case for like, like attaching that increase in teacher pay to incentivizing people to go to these hard hit districts. 
Yeah, I would also say that you don't necessarily need to choose between incentivizing teachers and paying them more and raising taxes. We have some really ridiculous government budgets around the country. I'm sure every district has some sort of wasteful spending that could be cut and redistributed. And I think regardless of what your party is or how you campaigned, that's a pretty winning sort of scenario to say, we're not even raising your taxes. We're just shifting from this ineffective program that we have here or this wasteful spending that we have here and shifting it towards education. I think that's a nonpartisan uh, move that everyone can get behind. And I would imagine that virtually every municipality has some degree of wasteful spending that could be reoriented towards the education system and benefit everyone. Yeah, Mississippi may be one of the hardest to find such wasteful spending. Like, obviously, we covered the, the welfare scandal and all that, but that was money that was wasted and potentially laundered that needs to stay in the welfare system. The mm-hmm. in Mississippi, as you know, Grover Norquest has said that he wants the government to be so small that he can, you know, drown it in a bathtub or whatever his quote was. This is Mississippi as his experiment in this. And, and I would say that uh, having been there, it's not great. And, you know, my friend Ben Allen, who is the president of the city council, a Republican of the, he was the president of the Jackson city council, used to say to me, if it weren't for federal spending, Mississippi would be a third world country. So basically, they've somehow they're they're people like my friend Tate Reeves are using all this small government lingo, but depending upon uh, the federal yeah. government to bail them out because they get two senators for a relatively small state, so they've always had outsized power, uh, and they had people like Dad Cochran, like mm-hmm. these people who were in the Senate for a thousand years, who were able to garner resources for them. So this. This is a troubling trend, and it's not just Mississippi. So there's a paper from Brown University that talks about shortages across the country. Some of the best, biggest shortages are in the South, Alabama, Mississippi, um, and then some scattered states, Montana, Kansas, New Mexico, Wisconsin, Maine, West Virginia. It's not a perfect through line, but it seems like some of the more small mm-hmm. and or rural states seem to be struggling. Now, that's not scientific explanation. Like, you know, somebody's going to have to do more work there, but it seems like you're seeing like these smaller states, sometimes more rural states, <clears throat> struggling here uh, to yeah. keep people in the profession. And teachers, by and large, across the board, um, are generally fairly unhappy and increasingly unhappy just to give a national sense. Um, Back in June, the American Federation of Teachers did a poll which found that 74% of respondents said they were unhappy with their current job state. And that's up from just 41% in 2020 from that same poll. So just to give a sense of how much worse it's gotten in recent years, given learning losses, pandemics, all the unrest that we've had recently, teachers are certainly feeling the brunt. Obviously, uh, a really sad story, and we're going to continue mm. to cover uh, the this larger labor question around teachers in particular. Obviously, we've been talking about in the tech industry, et cetera, but nowhere are the stakes higher than with our young kids and who we put in front of them. Absolutely. And so this is an area where hopefully we get a bipartisan consensus to reinvest in the teacher profession. But uh, we want to thank Aiden for joining. We want to thank Mississippi First. Uh, we want to thank our guests today in general. And listeners, get out there and give us a positive review on Apple or wherever you get your podcast. It really matters to us to get the word out and helps us with those algorithms, that AI out there that hopefully will get us to the top of the charts. You can even have chat GPT write your positive review of us. I won't tell. Okay. Uh, Well, thank you, everybody. We will be back here at our normal time on Thursday. Thank you very much and have a great day. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell.